In 1 Timothy chapter 2 is where we will be uh, camping out uh, today and for the next several weeks. Today, really focusing on this idea of what does it mean to pray the gospel. To pray the gospel. Paul has left this young elder, this young pastor in charge of this church at Ephesus. And as you saw last week in verses 18, Paul charges this young man by saying this, This I charge you, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophets previously the prophecies previously made about you, that by men you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this. Some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul is trying to protect this church because within this congregation, Lots of ungodly, unfaithful things are happening. There is a fight that is taking place within this church. A fight for truth. A fight for God's character. A fight for the gospel. And Paul is commissioning and charging this young pastor to watch over, to guard the flock, to fight for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's going to transitioning from from showing Timothy the urgency of this message and the urgency of this charge, from taking this idea of the gospel being at the center of this church and of their lives, that now he's going to move from that idea into really practical applications of what it means to have the gospel at the center of this congregation. Now, he's not moving away from the gospel. He is simply moving through or from the gospel, so into the life of the church. So the question is, over the last several weeks, is we've, we've preached these sermons. How do we guard the gospel? How do we celebrate the gospel? Last week, how do we fight for the gospel? And according to Paul, according to the inspiration of Scripture, we do all of those things by starting with prayer. That we pray the gospel. You know, praying is an interesting thing, isn't it? Most world religions do it. It is the most, probably the most simplest of commands in all of Scripture. Pray. Talk to me. All right? Talk to me. Put your phone down, like a wife on a date with her husband. Put your phone down. I need some FaceTime. Talk to me. Talk to me. You're not talking to me. Talk to me, all right? Prayer. God, talk to me. Put all these other things down. Talk to me. Speak with me. And, and more than an introduction or a way to get out of an awkward situation, which is what we awfully do in prayer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, let's, let's pray, all right? As a conclusion, let us remember for a moment that praying is is one of the most, if not the most divine thing that you and I can do on this planet. That any time that we're taking a moment to recognize the majesty and the character and nature of God. This is not something to be played with. Now, I'm not saying that it has to be formal. You ever notice those people from Kentucky that all of a sudden go into King James language when they pray? Don't do that. You're weird. 
stop it. All right? God can handle a few y'alls and yonders, I promise you. But no less, even in our intimacy with Him in prayer, may we not just see it as some sort of formality, but may we understand that we are speaking to God. Do you understand that, brothers and sisters? That God is present. That He is here. He is listening to these things. Prayer, the most divine practice in our earthly lives. It is the easiest command, and yet it is probably the most neglected. In the words of John Piper, you don't even have to get out of the bed to do it. And yet we don't. We don't. You're going to hear some about John Knox today, but one of the things that John Knox said in a prayer was this, prayer is the earnest and familiar talking with God. That there is this knowing of Him. That there is this intimacy with God that is exuberated and, and just expressed through your communication, through your prayer with the Almighty God. Mission Church, we have a high view of the sovereignty of God, don't we? I mean, God is in control. That He is not just Savior, but that means that He is Lord. That means that He has authority over everything. We have a high view of this as a congregation, but brothers and sisters, we hold fast to a God that does not change. Yet, may we also believe and trust that our prayers change things. We must live in that tension. We do not change God. We do not change His story. We do not change what He has planned. But you need to live in the tension, brothers and sisters, that we serve an almighty, unchangeable God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You better know the God of the Bible. He is Lord. He is King. He is Prince of Peace. He is the Holy and Anointed One. He is the Messiah. And yet, we must trust and believe that our prayers do change things. Jesus, you ask not, or you have not, because you ask not. When people are sick, what are you to do? Call before the elders of the church. May we not forget that God has not only uh, created the story, but He has also destined the means by which that story is going to unfold. And that is often through our prayers. It's through a praying people. Mission, let us hold a high view of the sovereignty of God and His, His, His inability to change. But let us not blame God and His sovereignty for our lack of disobedience in prayer. Let us be careful. But may it be from His character and from His nature that we come boldly to the throne room of God, believing and trusting that the God whom we are praying to works all things according to the counsel of His will, even those prayers. So today, as we 
kind of set it up, looking at, at, at that kind of perspective and, and talking about prayer. Paul is going to transition in this letter as he goes into chapter 2 there inside of your scripture where he says, first of all, then I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God. So Paul is saying after declaring, hey man, you got to watch because within the church, there are these false teachers. There are these false teachings that are leading people astray. They would lead even the elect if possible, which is impossible. But even if, if they could, they would try to lead even the elect, the chosen people of God, away from God and His Word. And so knowing this to be true, he's urging Timothy, this young pastor and the congregation at the church at Ephesus, hey, you need to pray. You need to, to, to all these different kind of expressions of prayer. Now, a lot of people have tried to go into details or, or all of these different types of praying, and I don't think that that's really what Paul is getting at. I think what he's using is, is synonyms more than anything to say, be a people of prayer. All right? We would maybe say, have long times of praying. Have short times of praying. Have, have prayers of thanksgiving. Have prayers of confession. Have prayers of thanksgiving. Have prayers of supplication. Have prayers of lamenting. Like all of this, the key component there is praying. All of those things are good. All of those things we should be participating in. And Paul is declaring to this young man, this is what we have to do. We, we have to pray. But specifically, these prayers are directed toward be made for all people. Be made for all people. Now, it's believed by many that within this church that there was, these, again, these false teachers that were trying to lead people astray. And in doing so, that they believed and were preaching a gospel that was only for a select group of people. That God was only going to save a select group group of people, and you had to fit all of this criteria in order for Him to save you. This is reminiscent of what we see inside of the Old Testament, isn't it? That these are the chosen people of God. The Bible said that they were the chosen people of God to be a blessing amongst the nations. And instead of giving the gospel, conceiving the gospel, they consumed the gospel. They became hoarders of the gospel, even to the point where they would reject and run away. See Jonah for an example. Because they did not want God to save other people. It is ours. And this belief system and these ideas begin to infiltrate itself into the church at Ephesus. And, and Paul is telling Timothy, hey, man, we need to pray for all people. Maybe even a different translation there is all types of people. All right? That, that Paul is trying to break down these walls of segregation in regards to salvation. And he's calling these people not to only pray for the same people over and over and over again, which we should do. However, that there is a specific calling upon the church's life, a specific calling on the Christian's life that you and I pray evangelistically for all people or all types of people, that we pray for every kind of person. When's the last time that you've prayed for the homeless man that you've passed by? 
Or do you simply just assume that he's masquerading around? When's the last time that you've prayed for someone who lives in Old Stone? All right? And if you live in Old Stone, we're praying that you become a member here. All right? Sell that house. If I was to look at your prayer list, or better yet, do you have a prayer list? See, we can quickly run to the, I mean, we all do this. We become creatures of habit, right? Lord, bless my mama, bless my daddy, bless my kids, right? Bless them, Lord. We don't even get really specific. Lord, bless all the people in the world. All right, amen, let's go eat. But the calling here is to evangelistically pray for the lost. And the lost come in all shapes and sizes. Man, they, they, they come in all different shapes and colors. There are lost people in high places and there are lost people in low places. If you do have a prayer list, how many people of color is on that list? How many terrorists are on that list? How many homosexuals are on that list? How many drunkard people are on that list? How many liars? How many men who abuse their wives are on that list? How many child molesters are on that list? See what we're getting at? See what the Scripture is calling us to? But Here's the deal. To know and to pray for lost people, you've got to know some lost people. Get into that next week. Paul wants the church to understand the significance of the gospel and their prayers. Prayers should not be limited to only a select few, but brothers and sisters, we're called to constantly be pleading with the Lord for the lost. And He knows everything before the foundations of the earth, and yet He calls His people to plead and to cry out for those who are lost. Do we not understand the realities of hell? Do we not understand the realities of God's wrath being placed upon a person? And yet He calls you and He calls me, brother and sister. He calls us to to be fervent and to daily plead with Him to save them. Paul is telling them, do not get this elitist mentality. Do not think that this is only for for white people or middle class people, but that the gospel is for all people or all types of people. That there will be representation inside of heaven of every tribe and every tongue. In every nation. The founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance had said by his friends that often when he would wake up and the first thing that he would do in the morning is as he would get up out of the bed is that you would hear him crying out to God in prayer for the nations as he held a globe clutched tightly in his hands. The idea of not just thinking about us specifically thinking about the lost. The the second thing that we get into in this side of this passage is in verse 2. 
Thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high places, that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So Paul, to explain this to his congregation, the church at Ephesus, is that he goes into really, who are some of these all types of people? Or all kinds of people? Well, some of those all kinds of people are kings. And we need to evangelistically pray for our leaders. We need to pray the gospel into our leaders. Now, what's interesting about this passage is when Paul's saying this, that we don't maybe necessarily understand the tension that is here. When Paul is writing 1 Timothy, there's a, a king of Rome. The emperor of Rome is a guy by the name of Nero. Nero is king. At the age of 17, Nero became the emperor of Rome. What were you doing at 17? Don't tell me, some of you. I know, and I cannot wash that out of my brain, what you have told me. All right? And you don't want to know what I was doing at 17 either. But at 17, this guy, this young man, becomes the emperor of Rome. Now, now listen, do you think that these are good things? When, when Nero became the emperor of Rome, he lowered taxes. Can I get an amen? That's a great thing, right? He, 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 he made some major changes in the slave laws. Like if you were a slave, then you could actually go to court and, uh, and kind of prosecute against or make claims against your terrible slave owner. Now, if you're going to have slavery, don't you think that's a good law to have? That you can complain against your master? They're wrongfully treating you? Yes, we would say that that's, that's, that's a good thing. Right? Nero was uh, really into the arts. He was really into athletics. And, and again, I think that all of us in this room would probably say those things are all great, fantastic things. But do you know what else about Nero? Nero had his own mother murdered. He seduced married women over and over and over again. And he also seduced many young boys. He supposedly po poisoned his own brother because he had a better singing voice than him. This dude was nuts. He was crazy. In 64 A.D., in Rome, there was a fire. Maybe you've heard of that, the Great Fire in Rome. And it wiped out 75% of the city. And it's, it's believed by many that it was actually Nero that set fire to his own city because he wanted to big a builder build a bigger house. When they began to question him, he quickly turned the attention and deflected away from himself and began to blame this group of people who were invading his city called Christians. He overwhelmingly began to persecute the Christians. He would have them dress up in, in animal fur, and then he would throw them to these wild dogs and have them ripped apart in front of him for entertainment. He would often take whole families of Christians, place them inside of uh, the centers of town, and invite people to come watch as they released lion after lion upon the Christian to rip them to shreds. In order to uh, light up his uh, enormous gardens, he would often take Christians and he would have them like dipped in some sort of oil. He would place them up on some sort of pole and he would light them on fire so that he can walk in the, the cool of the night throughout his gardens and having it lit up. 
Would we all say that Nero did some good things? Yes. This man was not a believer. He did simultaneously some evil, wicked, and wretched things. And this is the guy that is in control when Paul is writing this letter. So when Paul says, let's pray for the king, do you feel the tension now? When you're sitting there as as a common person who is being beaten and broken, enslaved and killed. And and where does Paul begin? He says, man, we need to pray for all people. Who is some of those all kinds of people? The king is. And who is the king? Nero is the king. On one hand, this pagan government did great things that, that we should be thankful for because they're gifts of God's grace. And those people's lives are the, during biblical times, but also for us today. And yet, simultaneously, there was tons of ungodliness in these pagan governments. The the same government that created pavement and began to pave roads throughout the known land Ultimately, so one day Christians could walk up and down those roads sharing the gospel. Let us not forget it. Yet simultaneously, is the same government who had a hand in the crucifixion of Jesus. So there are many blessings that come from government. There are these many joys and graces. The Bible tells us over and over and over again that, that these are orchestrated by God to protect people and, and, and all of these sorts of things that there can be simultaneously this weird thing, this tension that we're living in where we're underneath a pagan government, and we still are, who provides many great opportunities. And yet many opportunities, on the other hand, that are wretched and wicked. This is the situation that Paul is speaking into. Paul himself, through Christian history, tells us that he is one day martyred under the hand of who? Nero. Peter will one day, Christian history tells us, be crucified upside down because he says that he's unworthy to die in the same way that Jesus died. And who ordered that? Nero. Nero. And yet, more than his own safety, Paul is pleading for the salvation of pagan, wretched, wicked kings. More than his own life, more than than the wealth and the riches that were afforded to him as a Roman citizen, what is Paul pleading with this young church to do who is under Roman government? He is pleading them to to pray for the, the salvation of a wicked, satanic king named Nero. He is pleading with this. Later in Christian history, If you've been with us through our MCs, we've been learning a lot lately about a man named John Knox. John Knox was a famous uh, Protestant reformer in Scotland. It's said 
that Mary, queen of the Scots, trembled whenever John Knox went to his knees to pray. She even once said that she would rather face the armies of England than the prayers of John Knox. It is said that she hated and feared John Knox. You know what's interesting about that story, ladies and gentlemen? Is Mary, queen of the Scots, claimed to be a Christian? She claimed to be a Christian and yet has one of the most like murderous histories in regards to this idea. And yet, what was she most fearful of? More than all the, the armies in England, she is saying, man, I'm more fearful of this man who is a man of prayer, who understands the character and the nature of God, that when he, when he speaks of the majesty and the overwhelmingness that is the character and nature of our God, all it can do is drive us to pray and to pray for him or to pray for her. That's what he did. What was it that Mary, Queen of Scots, so feared about John Knox? She feared John Knox because he believed that God worked through prayer. He was a man that acted on his belief and would boldly come before the throne of grace like no other, laying his petitions at the Father's feet. John Knox prayed with such power that all of Scotland was awakened. The cry of his heart was, Lord, give me Scotland or I will die. And you think, man, that's a religious Christian fanatic. No, that is a that is Christian 101. It is the example that we see in Jesus. It is the example that we see in a man named Paul who is writing this letter in the book of Romans when he says this, when he says, I wish myself accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. What is he saying there? He's saying Paul is, is in his prayer life. He's saying, God, if it would be better for me to go and to spend an eternity in hell for all of Israel to be saved, then I will easily give up my spot in heaven to go to hell for them. Is that in your prayer journal? See, we're, we're more consumed with, I'm not going to hell. I'm good. I'm not going there. Right? That Christian cliche junk that we say, like, I got my fire insurance. I'm not going to hell. I'm good. Me and Jesus. But that's the, the picture that, that we're, we're, we're paying, and yet, the, the picture of the, of the gospel is, no, we sacrifice our lives and we, we're begging, crying out to a merciful God to save all of those around us. Later on, my hero in the faith, Charles Spurgeon, would say of John Knox that every time that John Knox went upstairs to pray, that that was the most important and greatest event in Scottish history. It was the prayer of that man for his countrymen and for his government. According to one of the commentaries, it says this, pray for your king you suffer under. Pray for your leader who you don't agree with. Pray for the re ruler that you don't approve of. This is the will of God. So are you praying for these men and women? Or are you watching the news and getting frustrated and angry with them?
being a Christian trumps your race. Being a Christian trumps your nationality. Being a Christian trumps your economic status. It trumps your position. It trumps your power. Therefore, brothers and sisters, I am pleading with you if you are claiming to be a follower of Jesus in this room. If you are claiming to know Jesus, if you are claiming to know the gospel that we are speaking of inside of this place, you must begin to understand and see people, all people, all nations through the lens of the gospel. You and I voted, but we must understand that every person that is put into power and to in position is put there by the very hands of God. And sometimes this is for blessing and sometimes this is for discipline. But they're no less there because God didn't want them to be there. See, a few years ago, there were, there were way more prayers coming from Christians inside America for Osama bin Laden to be killed than there were for Osama bin Laden to be saved. And when your patriotism becomes a God, this is displeasing to God. Many of us will be quick to complain about our presidents but we will be slow to pray for them. Slow. We will socially, just verbally abuse and slander on social media. And yet this is not what God has called you and I to do. But rather, you know what He has called us to do? He tells us. He calls us to, one, love them. To love them. Secondly, He calls us to pray for them. To love your president. Do you love our president? The Christian answer is yes. How about the one before him? Yes. You pray for them. Yes. God is at work in the prayers. No matter if we have a a generous king whom God is, is maybe giving us for a season of blessing or a tyrant and a dictator whom as oppressing people and oppressing us. Does this mean that we agree with the sin? No. Does this mean that we never stand before some things? No, because here's the deal. If it's a gospel issue like we've seen the last few weeks over this whole abortion issue, then no, we stand up against that because why? It is a gospel issue as the image bearers of Christ who are placed inside of the wombs of moms are being pulled out, ripped out, murdered, and killed at now any stage. And that is wretched and it is satanic and demonic. It is wrong. So, no. There are times that we need to stand up to those who are in front of us. 
when it becomes an issue of the gospel, an issue of submitting to our authorities as the Scripture tells us to do, unless those authorities are calling us to submit to something that the Scripture never does. We stand. We stand. Brothers and sisters, we're talking a lot about false teaching inside of this sermon series. I was thinking this week, is it possible that one of the false teachings that we have embraced in our times is the belief that our government is our Savior? Did you hear that? That the idol of government is very rampant inside of so-called American Christianity. And it's tough, isn't it? Because here's the deal. On, on one hand, we can have a, le a leader who loves his wife and loves his children. Right? And you can watch that. And see their relationship. And you think, man, that's a great relationship. He loves her. And she looks at him and it's just awe-inspired by looking at him. Those girls, they, they love him. His kids, they, they love their daddy, the president. And that's something, man, that, they seem like they have a great relationship. That is a beautiful blessing, isn't it? To be able to witness that from the guy who sits in the White House. But he kills babies. And it's pro that. Like Nero, there are many good things that we can go, man, thank God for that grace. Thank God that a country gets to see that kind of relationship from the White House. Yet, let us not forget the hands over here that are ungospel like unbiblical-like. Or, or, or maybe it's a guy who, man, helps our economy. And, and we see the economy booming. Maybe they're pro-life. And those are great things. It's good that people have jobs. Don't you agree? That's a great thing. It's great that we're not murdering babies. That's a great thing, right? To be seen from the White House, that's a great thing. Those are awesome things. And yet simultaneously, can't trust a word that's coming out of his mouth. seems to be downgrading towards women. Do you get the tension? See, brothers and sisters, I heard somebody say one time that we as Christians should be so liberal that the, con the, the conservatives don't get us and we're too conservative that the liberals don't want to see them. Because if you're going to be the Bible and we're going to live like Jesus then you know where that puts us? Way more in between than ever grasping for one side or the other. This is the tension that they must have been feeling when this letter was read that day. As they're seeing all of these blessings from a government, and yet all of this tension and dirtiness and nastiness 
And how do we live as Christians in between where Paul is going to show us over and over and over inside this letter, but primarily he's telling us this all starts with a deep centeredness in the gospel. And yet, from that gospel, it permeates with us being people upon our knees crying out to God for the salvation of all people, crying out for salvation inside of our leaders. Whether we like their policies or not, or like their personhood, God has called us to love them and to pray for them. See, brothers and sisters, we as Christians live in this tension. We're to pray for those who are wanting to build a wall. We're also pray for those whom the wall is going to keep out. We pray for both. Lord God, give our leaders wisdom. Save them. Give them true a true salvific experience. But we also have to think about those refugees in Turkey and pray, God, help them. We got to pray for the leadership inside of, of Iraq and Iran, who we just, many of us don't know the difference between those two places. And yet God calls us to love them, to love them, to pray for them. First Peter is going to tell us in 2 13 through 17, be subject to the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be uh, the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who the devil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Brothers and sisters, we've got to be people who are known much more for our prayer life than our political life. Is it possible that in many of these cases, specifically speaking to social media, that we may be helping our cause, but we are hurting our gospel witness? You may be helping your cause, but you may be hurting the spreading of the gospel. And I, and I think uh, as an overarching, if, if this is my last sermon to you, ever, if the Lord takes me out today, then, then, then you must be warned against that mentality. We are not here for the spreading of democracy, but I love democracy, don't you? As Christians, though, we're here for the spreading of the gospel. And we live in that tension. He's telling us here, be good citizens, which we should be. We should be early to work. We should not be stealing from our employees. We should be working hard. We should be the, the best neighbors. We should help those in need. We should be, as believers in Christ, we are to be the ones to, to rush in to help and to serve the, the poor and the rich and to encourage people with the gospel of Jesus Christ that we truly love our city. And all of these things, specifically speaking into government, these are great gifts from God. They are graces from God in our lives. I'm thankful to be born here. I've seen much of the world. And in that, I'm thankful to be 
born in, in Kentucky. I'm thankful to be born a United States citizen. I am thankful for all of those good graces in my life. But where there is much given, there is much expected out of us. And we must understand, brothers and sisters, that government and all these things are great gifts from God. But they are not God. They are not God. Brothers and sisters, I am always concerned when I see people obsessed with people on the left and on the right. deeply concerns me. And, but let me give you a, not just a, a right now example, but I can show you this in a biblical example as well. Any of you ladies want to be married to the man who is a man after God's own heart? His name was David. But do any of you want to be married to that joker? I mean, you get that tension, right? A man, is that said after anybody in here? Right? Man after God's own heart. You sit in the front row, you get spit at and talked about, brother. I love you. All right? Do you, do you understand that, though? I mean, even King David, man after God's own heart, heart player, sling, rock slinger, right? Giant killer, right? King. But you don't want to idolize him. You don't want to be him. He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He was a terrible dad. thankful for him. There are many things, again, that we can celebrate. We give thanks for him. There are things inside of David's life, man, we can aspire to be like, okay? But there are other things that we also need to recognize, like this was wrong, sinful, and wretched. And so in all of that, even David points to a true and better king, and his name is Jesus. And that's who you and I need to ultimately surrender our lives to. We are thankful for these glimpses inside of the Scripture. We are thankful for these glimpses inside of church history. But all of them should be pointing to the person and work of Jesus, our true and better King. Why is this important this morning? It's important because it tells us here in verse 3, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God. Do you need any more motivation to pray than that? It is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God. Not slander of leaders. But supplication for them. Salvation for them. I get it. I mean, we're sitting here and we're asking, Lord, I don't know, I don't know what to do. I don't know what's going on here. This, this doesn't make any, any sense. Our, our, our situation seems to be so divided, and yet none of us are, are in fear of being, being thrown to the gallows today because you and I are meeting in a school 
celebrating the person and work of Jesus, and yet the early church was in that, and yet we're still in this tension of going, God, I don't know why this person is in office. I don't know why she is in office. I don't understand. I, I don't get all of that, right? It's just like, oh my gosh, this is just rhetoric. It's so distracting, Lord Jesus. But if you look in my prayer journal from this year, None of those people's names are mentioned. From Pelosi to Trump to whoever. I've probably spent a lot more time in my mind complaining than I have praying. I'm praying ultimately for salvation. So what do we get from this? We see here, church mission that we must be a community of faith obsessed with the evangelistic prayers of all people everywhere. That we are a people that pray for the rich, we pray for the poor, we pray for the white, we pray for the black, we pray for the Hispanic, we pray for every color in between. We pray for the USA, and yet we clutch tight a globe. Praying for countries that we can't even pronounce. And this is one of the reasons why we have implemented inside of our call to worship a prayer for the nations for this very passage. May we be a faithful people begging, pleading, crying for God to save the lost. May we be like John Knox. Lord God, give me Bowling Green or I die. Give me Bowling Green or I die. May it be hard to go to hell from Bowling Green, Kentucky. I pray for the day they have to put a bypass around this city. Because if you drive through it, Jesus is going to save you. Where the people actually act like the people of God who are pleading with God to save. That, that person who is Dwight Schrute in your office, instead of being completely annoyed by them, how much are you praying for them? That husband or wife that you wake up to and you're like, ooh, they give me the creeps. But you won't say that out loud because you want breakfast that morning? Have you become an all-star of, of their problems? Or have you become a cheerleader to the throne room of God pleading for God to work in that person's life? That neighbor... co-worker, that mother-in-law, not speaking to mine, she's awesome. That father-in-law, again, mine's awesome. That child that annoys you to death, pray. Two, we must be a community of faith that is marked more by our prayer life than our protesting of non-gospel related issues. Third, and the greatest important of these is why? Because this type of prayer in the congregation, in the local body, is pleasing to God. I'll leave you with this illustration before we come to a time of altar, a time of prayer, a time of communion. Last weekend, as Laura and I were in, uh, Vanderbilt Children's Hospital. 
uh, we had the opportunity to stream a worship service um, from one of my friend's church in Nashville called the Axis Church. Uh, the Axis Church, their sister churches with us, um, have helped us in mighty ways here at Mission. And uh, if Mission has a mothership, um, I guess it's the Axis Church in Nashville. And Laura and I were sitting there, and I was streaming this, this service. And in streaming this service, uh, my friend Brooks was, was preaching. and He's one of the elders there. And he was preaching on some issues regarding prayer and the Lord's Prayer that it's found in, inside of, specifically, he was preaching from Luke. And he began to talk about these things about prayer. And in, in the Lord's Prayer, you know, if you've played a sport, they've probably used it wrongly in hopes of helping you win the ball game. But it begins, you know, our, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And Brooks made a great point. He said, you know, what's interesting about this passage is, is that Jesus doesn't say, give us our decade bread. Give us our weekly bread. Give us our monthly bread. Give us our yearly bread. Give us our 10-year bread. Give us our, our centennial bread. He doesn't say that. What does he say? Give us our daily bread. Brothers and, Jesus, brothers and sisters, I cannot tell you how that has swept over my wife and I. Because there have been many days where I simply have not wanted to go on because of our situation. And I've just had to pray, Lord Jesus, I don't know if there will be bread available tomorrow, but Lord Jesus, give us enough bread for this day. Give us enough strength for this day. Last week as we were also inside of Vanderbilt Children's Hospital, what was interesting was is that after waiting about 9-10 hours inside of emergency room, catching all of the diseases from the emergency room, they finally get us into a room. And it's a special room inside of Vanderbilt Children's Hospital for kids with epilepsy. And inside of these special rooms, if you've never had an EEG um, before, um, it looks like, like something out of the movie The Matrix. And uh, what they do is, is they, 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 you, they lay you down and they glue all of these probes to your head. And it just reads them constantly. And they, they needed to do that for cash. And so they got us into this room. And inside of this room, um, they tell us before we get started, hey, we want you to know, Bakers, that uh, there's a, a video camera right here. And so we're watching 24-7 what's going on inside this room. We could also have video, not only video, but audio that is constantly being recording of everything that is taking place inside this room. So I quickly looked at my wife and I said, you be careful what you say inside this room, right? Don't be kissing all over me, right? It's being videotaped. That's weird, okay? So we're inside of this special room. It's got videotapes. They're recording everything that's taking place from audio to video. And we have to literally hold down cash for about 30, 45 minutes as Laura and I are both laying on top of him. He still has bruises to this day for us trying to hold down our son as they glued all of these probes to his head. Well, they glue all of these probes to his head and we're sitting there and they said, the nurses came in and they said, okay, Mr. and Mrs. Baker, here's what we need you to also be aware of is that as you're sitting here over the next 24 hours watching your son have seizure after seizure, and you can do absolutely nothing about it, what we want you to do is every time he does that, we want you to take this long cord, and at the end of this long cord, there's a red button. 
And every time that happens, we want you to write down the time, what's taking place, and how long it lasts inside of cash. But also, when you press this red button, I'm going to run in here. Now, what's interesting about that is that we had begin to see several episodes inside of cash. And as soon as we would press that red button, all across the entire floor in every room, in the epilepsy center of Vanderbilt Children's Hospital, over the intercom, it comes and says, patient episode in room 25. Patient episode in room 25. Patient episode in room 25. And as soon as you smash that button, there's a slew of doctors and nurses that run into that room, and yet it can be heard from every room. And we were told... Push it every time. Not only could we hear that there were episodes taking place in our room, but we heard every episode in every room in those kids' lives. At one point, our nurse was in there with our episode when a room next door to us, and she said, I'm so sorry, Mr. and Mrs. Baker, and had to run to their room to care for that kid and that family. videotaped everything. They heard everything. And whenever there was an episode, you push the button and a slew of people run into your room. Lauren and I began to apologize because once cash starts having them, they just seem to steamroll for a little while. And so it was like episode, room, 25. Episode, room, 25. Nurse comes in. We're so sorry. And this is what she would say. This is why we're here. This is why you're here, Mr. Baker. Don't ever feel sorry for pushing that red button. Push the red button every time. Brothers and sisters, we got to keep our hand on the red button. Because there's an almighty God who is watching everything. He is hearing everything. He, he knows exactly what is taking place. And brothers and sisters, we've got to keep our hand smashed down on that red button in prayer and letting people know what is taking place inside of our lives. And it is the responsibility of the church then once that red button is, is happening, that there is an episode in your heart. There's an episode in your heart. There's an episode in my heart. There's an episode here. There's an episode there. And that is where the church comes together on bending knee to say, we need to know. That's why you're here. for us to come together. So I plead with you, brothers and sisters, may we be people of prayer who are genuinely caring for each other. That prayer, again, is not just something, I'll pray for you. 
It's not just something that we write into a prayer journal if you have that. It's not just something that we do before a meal. It's, it's not just something that we do at a ball game. It's not just something that we do to conclude some sort of event or meeting, but it is something that we are the people that are constantly, Lord Jesus, because I don't know how your life is, but I can tell you how my life is, and I'm not asking you for to feel sorry for me. Because God does not. It's to mash that button. And don't ever let off. Because we're called to be a praying people. To pray without ceasing. So confess it not only to God, what is really going on in the corridors of your heart, but find a brother, find a sister, find a church family where you can also share those things and then we wrap our arms around each other as you did mine in this last week. And that's what we're called to. Why? Because at the center of our hearts and lives in church is the gospel. And the gospel calls us to pray. So let's do just that. Let's pray. Would you?